three. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And um, my special guest today is Ryan. And uh, you are someone who you've always inspired me, actually, man. I never I probably never told you that that. Um, but every time I've engaged with you and I've followed you on Facebook, I um, I respect the way you approach things. And, you know, I, I always when I look for wisdom or people who have some kind of they're on the right path. I which is the, the main thing that I look for is a sense of openness. And I've always felt that from you. So I'm happy to have you on the show. So welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for, for bringing me on, Soren. I appreciate those those kind words. Yeah, I think um, I think being open and not being so certain uh, is is really important, especially <laughs> now. You know, so you mean in in accordance to like our times, COVID and stuff. Uh, just just in general, not not just particularly COVID related. But I think you know we're in this information era where everything's so accessible and no one really needs to think anymore they can just google something you know so i think that um, being open-minded and not being so certain about what we think we know is is really important and i think it, it helps us not be so quick to defend or quick to attack um others as well so yeah, definitely. So let's kind of backtrack a little bit. So what what brought you or what, what made you interested in meditation initially? Well, um, I'm half Thai. So as a kid, I used to go to these Thai summer camps. I grew up in Southern California, so in the Los Angeles area. And there's this temple, Thai temple, that's been uh, been here for a really long time, since the late 60s. And for me to learn Thai, my mom, uh, my family just left me there uh, during the summers, uh, during the day, and I would learn Thai. So from a young age, I was around the Buddhist monks and the nuns and bowed before the Buddha and all of that. And in the morning um, before before school, at the Thai temple, we, we would have to sit and meditate and just be quiet and not make any noise for, for five minutes or something like that uh, every morning. So that was my first exposure to Buddhism and, and meditation. Um, I got older and I forgot uh, how to speak Thai, unfortunately. <laughs> and then uh, in high school, I was really interested in philosophy and yeah, just open-minded in that way. And I was pretty secular though. So I wasn't, I, I didn't specifically have spiritual inclinations, but I certainly had uh, philosophical ones. So when I was um, 17, maybe 16, yeah, I think I was 16. My mom invited me on a meditation retreat. And at the time I was, I was in a lot of trouble um, in school. I'd uh, been arrested a couple times. My dad was uh, struggling with addiction. And so I had a lot of anger and a lot of resentment um, growing up. 
and middle school and, and into high school. And that eventually, you know, translated into some serious problems. So my mom, uh, she had the Thai, you know, all the Thai TV channels. And at the time, the uh, Dhammakaya temple had a TV channel that was on, on the air. And they used to showcase all their different retreats all over the world uh, and the ones that they were going to have as well. So they had a retreat planned for one in Southern California. And my mom just, you know, she just asked me if I wanted to go. And I thought, sure, why not? <laughs> and uh, I went on the retreat and yeah, that was the beginning. It was taught by, by three monks and it was in a Catholic monastery. So they rented it out for that weekend. And yeah, that's where it all began. So. Wow. I, I can totally relate to that state of like being a teenager alienated angry depressed having problems and you know at least for me like kind of nothing really traditionally worked um and then when i learned meditation and like buddhism it was so different so i was like why not uh it sounds for in your case it's a mixture of culturally it was like you were introduced to it at a young age but also from your pain or difficulties it was like okay i'll go to a temple <laughs> yeah exactly i think i was i was open to it because it, it wasn't too it wasn't too unfamiliar you know like yeah. i i've seen monks before um but um but yeah there was definitely something something magical about it uh you know if people people who knew me at the time were really surprised that i went and did that so Right. And can you talk about, let's talk about the magic because I, I also know exactly what you mean, but a lot of people, maybe they don't, or they, we can kind of, uh, I don't want to say sell meditation, but you know, you have to, it's like when I first learned meditation or mindfulness, it was, I was more learning about mindfulness, but I guess everyone goes through like a honeymoon phase where you start to feel some relief some less less anxious just a little bit happier and then it's like wow like i can i have some not some of my power back i can implement this in my life and that's that's how i would describe the magic is that what you mean um i i think i was i was referring to for some reason the moment she asked me like a little light went off in my wow. in my mind you know, that, that, that was the magical part, like in a situation where usually I would have said, Oh, like, you know, mom and some other thing that she's, that she's into, I was actually very open to it. You know, in our, in our tradition, we say that they would say that I had the merit, right. To, to right. receive that opportunity and then to, to follow through on it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, uh, so for those listening, um, obviously like, in a lot of ways, we're I think we're lucky to be American and we're kind of Buddhism is very new to the West. So we're exposed to like you can you can try in, in any like major city, you can experience, you can, you know, learn a Chinese tradition, Korean, Thai, Viet, Vietnamese, there's a Tibetan. So we have a lot of options. But as you know, your mom is Thai, you're half Thai, you've been to Thailand, you've been a monk in Thailand there's a, it's a little bit more narrow, but 
it's it's a whole another ball game. I mean, the the way that Buddhism is practiced in Thailand versus the West. Uh, did you did you ever try any other traditions, or you just stuck with? Oh yeah, tons. Yeah, I have. Uh, I'm like a meditation mutt, you know. I've tried <laughs> lots of different stuff. Yeah. So I had that first. Um, I did that first three day retreat and first day, second day, nothing. Like just couldn't couldn't fill my mind at all. And was pretty frustrated. And on the third day, like the final evening session. Uh, there was finally like a lifting and it was like the clouds parted, you know, and I had this very profound um, experience of, of inner happiness and, and joy. So it was really, there was this feeling of, it wasn't an out of body experience. Um, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't say it was to that extent, but there was this sense of floating above my body and floating through the ceiling and, you know, into the sky, just being really way up there even though I could still feel my body, you know, in the chair. And there was just this beautiful light experience of light in the, in the mind's eye. And um, that, that feeling of being enveloped in that, in that love and, and happiness, it, it made me want to explore further. And so I did. Um, as soon as I turned 18, um, I did a 10 day, uh, Vipassana retreat. So the Goenka, so in the Goenka tradition, those ten-day silent retreats, I did, I did that as soon as I could. And that experience completely sold me on meditation. I was like uh, dying. I felt I was so suffering so much, like day mm. five, day six, with the with the leg pains and everything. They're, oh, they're yeah. Characteristic of that of that retreat, you're meditating like. 10, 14 hours a day, you know? Yeah. So I was definitely suffering a lot, but um, you endure the pain. And then around the sixth or the seventh day, you have a peak and there's a breakthrough and the pain disappears. And you're like, oh my God, this is what meditation is really about. This is it. And then on the 10th day, everyone breaks silence, right? And you've ne I've never seen people that happy in my life on the day on the the final day of a 10-day retreat and they can finally all talk again you know like people are just beaming they're so happy and um there's a moment at the end of that 10-day retreat i was i was walking in the snow and i was just alone out there like walking through the woods behind the um the meditation cabin and yeah for the first time in my life the mind the mind just completely stopped like there just wasn't any any movement internally and everything was really still like frozen in time uh, I don't know for how long but this massive just like it was just like a well of peace opened up in in my body and, and in my heart and I it was so profound and overwhelming I just thought wow this is this is so much peace and contentment that if I, if I died right now, that my life would have been worth it. Like the 18 years that I lived it, it would have been worth it just for, for this retreat and just for this moment. So after that, I became a pretty dedicated practitioner. Um, a year later, I, Dhammakaya Foundation through the Middle Way Institute, they were doing a meditation teacher training program. 
and um yeah it was 90 90 days um and i did that and that was very difficult 90 days was very different from 10 days <laughs> especially yeah. for being that young yeah but but yeah so i tried i tried different practices like i did a few goenka retreats i did a lot of practice in the dhammakaya tradition while i was in thailand one year i I went to Pandita Rama and I practiced Vipassana, but the other, but the style in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition have some experience in Zen and, and Dzogchen as well. I'd say those are my main, those, that, that's all my main practice right there. So I imagine like a lot of people probably don't know about the Dharmakaya meditation technique, but it's like, really powerful but the it's kind of uh i feel like fortunate because when i i was came to thailand and similar to you like in the program for peace revolution and but everyone has a different like experience with the technique like i did a vipassana treat right before coming here so i was like but i started to have these like crazy experiences and i you know, Lumpy Pasara, I would go to him like, dude, I don't know if this is safe. I feel like I should be wearing a seatbelt or something. And he's like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I understand. Keep going. But I think uh, it sounds like you kind of, you, you prepared yourself for, to be able to really go deep in that technique. Whereas I think sometimes for a beginner, maybe it's, it can be overwhelming, like, I th it's like the first step is to calm down and for westerners especially that can take years to just to first calm and then uh start to try to to go like deeper in yourself and uh but uh what's um so that so your experiences it was enough for you to motivation to know like this is possible this state of mind this happiness is possible and i can implement it in my life and do you feel like it, you've always been chasing that or is it just that you know that it's possible so you just keep practicing um that's a good question well i don't chase i don't really chase anything anymore um after seven years I did like seven years of a lot of practice and a lot of um, retreats. And at the seventh year, there was a kind of, uh, it was a very powerful breakthrough and shift that happened. So there's not much of a sense of chasing, <coughs> chasing happiness anymore or much of a sense of uh, being a person in time anymore. So a lot of that stuff was like chasing the future or chasing like previous meditative experiences Mm. or potential meditative experiences a lot of that pretty much ended after practicing for for seven years there just wasn't a sense that um that that was really real anymore that, that whole thing of like ryan becoming happier or like ryan becoming bliss it ended when finally there was a breakthrough and there was no longer me becoming happier there was just happiness there wasn't Ryan feeling bliss or experiencing bliss. There was only mm. bliss. Yeah. So I think that, that peak, um, 
that peak awakening uh, really reformed or reformatted and permanently altered my relationship with meditation and Buddhism forever, even till now. So, yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? It's we are almost trained from an early age that happiness or success is some place in the future. And it's yeah. almost like instilling this message in, in a child's mind, like you're not good enough. You're not enough. You're actually, you're not happy now. <laughs> and in, in reality, like most children are just like, we see a children and you say, we're attracted to the, the innocence and the just, the, the freedom right. that a kid has is like, oh, I was just playing, having a good time. And then like I, society is like, oh, you have to work for it. You have to go to school. And that, that message is so deeply ingrained in our mind that you're not, you haven't arrived yet. And I, I feel like I'm still deprogramming that. Um, and, and actually like, it's weird throughout my process of like, changing and transforming I, I there's a little bit of resentment i don't want to say to education system or society but it's like i feel like in a way sure. we're, we're sort of fooled like when you, you can't feel you're not supposed to feel good enough you haven't achieved what you're supposed to achieve but it's as you know it's like it's never enough and we all know this through theory it's right. like everyone knows it but in practice it's it's so hard to keep remembering. And also it's like, you could, and I've found this also to be true, where it's like, I, I tried to just stay true, like hold on to my beliefs, like, okay, I'm happy, I, I have enough. And then if everyone around me is like, has a different idea, they're just like, what, what do you mean, why? <laughs> I'm not happy. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um... I think what makes people happy is different um, depending on the person, you know, and um, we have a very, our society structured in a certain way in the West, like where we're from. And a lot of your happiness and self-worth is attached to what you do, mm. right? And what you achieve and what you give back to the world. And I think the real beauty of Buddhism and the contemplative traditions is that it completely deconstructs that and and it states very clearly that happiness is happiness doesn't need to be dependent on anything you know it's just a natural natural aspect natural state of being to uh to be happy it's more like where we're from we have to get we have to become something in order to be happy and the contemplative model is that happiness is inherent whatever is impeding it just needs to be uh, removed or unveiled so I think it's pretty radically different um, but definitely I understand your point of like being you know like why why weren't we taught this way or yeah exactly. you know, why why was this programmed into us and you know when I think about it it's, I mean I can't exactly say that the people who taught us knew any better you know, <laughs> yeah, <I> know. So, <laughs> right yeah, <laughs> it's 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 there's a mixture of that and all, but it's also very empowering to know like it's the, that like aha moment like oh shit like they didn't know either, and that's I I kind of part of the reason for doing this podcast is just to have interesting conversations like with people like yourself who I want to talk to, but also just to to share 
information, like share my experience, because I, I really believe that in in the west there's you know you see the news is like horrific all these shootings there's a little and you know like there's just a lot of pain there's pain everywhere in the world but there's a lot of mental suffering in in the west in the u.s and right tools have just not been I, why did i learn about this like meditation simple thing of breathing techniques like it's so late in life and uh you know if if someone can is going through having a hard time and can, you know, listen to someone's experience, like this really works. Like I'm telling you, uh, I, I think it's, it's worthwhile. And that's kind of where I want to take, take this, like, what do you think the, the, I, I know in the West now, it, it seems that like mindfulness, meditation, Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy is kind of like popular nowadays. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'd say so. So uh, what do you, what's your intention or like goals for uh, showing uh, people the way, I guess? Yeah, I mean, my mindfulness without a doubt has reached, has, has reached uh, really the core of Western culture. It's now, it's now taught in, you know, hospitals, it's taught in universities, it's, it's taught all over the place. I mean, every, yeah, every treatment center, rehabilitation center is teaching mindfulness at this point. So I think it's good. Um, I think it's good whenever you have mass, mass consumption like that, you do get a watering down. It's kind of similar to like what's happened with yoga, you know, like everyone, everyone does yoga, but no one really does yoga, right? Like everyone <laughs> yeah. does yoga as an exercise yeah but yeah so I, it was funny i had a conversation with a guy at a, at a diner about this and we just started talking and he's like and I, he asked me what i did and i was like yeah you know i'm a meditation teacher I, I work at school and then you know i teach outside of that as well and he's just like really how was like so you meditate a lot and i was like yeah i meditate a lot you know i, I went to asia i did all of that and he's like wow that's that's cool man he's like yeah i know a lot of people that that meditate but not really right he's like he's like mindfulness and meditation is like jogging like a lot of people jog but there's not yeah. a lot of runners right yeah, it's yeah, the same, yeah he said it's the same thing with with um with meditation so i think it's good that more people are doing it and more people have access to it as just a basic resource to calm themselves and to get some clarity but i think it will provide a, it will be a gateway for a lot of people to do deeper contemplative work later. I think because they're exposed to it so early, it is something that they'll come back to later in life when they are having a kind of identity or spiritual crisis or you know something gets shaken up in their lives. So they'll they'll go back to that that thing that made them calm, and I hope that that will that will lead to some some genuine spiritual exploration. There are some issues with it, you know, the fact that it's so widely taught now, you, you can't really control the quality of what's being taught. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of programs that are like mindfulness teacher certification, 50 hours, and then you get your certificate. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you know, you learn this stuff, they, tell, they teach you mindfulness, and then they teach you to go to your happy place, and you're yeah. imagining yourself under a waterfall. And then you meet someone like me, 
and I just take a shotgun to all of that, you know. So <laughs> no, it's but it's but it's good. At least they have at least they have the introduction and they have you know the initial exposure and they they have some familiarity with sitting and with noticing. It's really the foundational core stuff for sure. So. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And it's I mean, it's sort of like you've you've been to Thailand, you've been a monk before, so it's sort of like you've been to I wouldn't say the source, but you've you know what it's like in a Buddhist country to be an actual yeah. monk in a Buddhist country. And then when you go back to the West and you see like just some dude that's like took a 40 hour training is like, I'm here to teach you mindfulness. It's it's just like you kind of just know like, okay, it's, this is ridiculous. Uh, and I feel like nowadays you see a lot of people like giving their it's almost like you're it's become corporate. Like, here's my quality, yeah, exactly. here are my qualifications. And it's like in exactly. reality, like like someone like you, you're way more qualified than anyone to teach mindfulness or meditation, but you may have not like taken all of the courses at uh, you know, some university about this. Yeah, you know, if I don't if you don't have a PhD in neuroscience, know, neuro neurobiology or something like yeah, yeah. that, right? Or, or psychology. If you're if you're a psychologist um, or a psychiatrist and you're you're teaching meditation, I mean, generally, I think people are gonna believe you more, um, unless unless yeah. you're like Eckhart Tolle or you know you have a big following or something like that. <laughs> but yeah. but that but that's just how it is. Like people, we 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 judge things based on on surface value, and you know there, there's a reason for that. And so, um, but yeah, I think that overall it's it's good and um i know it's helping so many people i know it's helping it's helping millions of people i mean just like yoga it doesn't you know million, millions of people aren't doing it for no reason right so yeah. yeah i think it's i think there's a promising future ahead of us with mindfulness and meditation for sure yeah i'm i'm really hoping that and you know again i i don't want to give it too much attention because it's like truth the truth speaks louder and it's like you just keep doing your thing and trying to help people and that's that's the goal there's always going to be you know people pretending to do yoga or it's just stretching yeah exactly mindfulness like, teachers that are just like i don't know what it is yeah yeah just it just comes with the, it comes with the territory um and at least at least people are trying you know, I mean, there's like this thing, a lot of people like to bash on people who try to become spiritual teachers or try to, or try to teach yoga. And, um, you know, they don't have, they don't have the 10,000 hours it takes to, or the 5,000 hours it takes to like really be considered a teacher, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't think that, I, I don't think that, I don't even think that most people are looking for that. I mean, are most people really looking for a discourse on zazen and emptiness you know do most people really want to learn about dependent origination patija samupada yeah. i don't think they do i think they want to know um yeah i have this problem can you help me so, <laughs> so yeah so i think that being the case like more people doing this and more people being willing to help is is very important yeah yeah and i, I think uh 
monks are cool. Like I, I respect good monks a lot, but there's a lot of people that we have serious problems, like family relationships, sexuality stuff. And if you, if you're a normal person and you're practicing, it's, it's easier to kind of be able to help someone because you can relate to it. Um, it's, I was going to say, um, do you think that most people like I found when I go to monasteries or retreats, people inclined to get into meditation and stuff, they're all, it's usually because of suffering. Yeah. 100%. And, uh, but it's, it's interesting because a lot of times the, the translation or of Buddhism can seem nihilistic, like life is full of suffering and it kind of turns people off at first. But that's just the, that's, if you think about it, it's just the reality, like you're going to suffer. And just as you described in the Vipassana retreat, like you suffered for seven days, like intensely, but then out of that, in comparison to that, you felt like people were so happy. So it's just like setting the stage for the reality of life. Like, yeah, it's life is full of suffering, but here's a way to suffer less and actually life is full of happiness. I, I feel like that has to that should kind of be, it's the, the explanation maybe is, can seem nihilistic, but it's actually not at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's like this, uh, a, glass, a glass that's half full of water is also half empty. Like it's half full, but it's also half empty. A lot of people don't want to acknowledge that it's half empty. Um, this is a huge thing in, in spirituality. I see it all the time. Because, because we see spirituality, we experience spirituality as a solution to our problems. And we have this idea that like we're going to do spiritual practice or we're going to get enlightened and then everything bad that ever happened to us is just going to be forgotten. And all the uh, unsavory parts of ourselves are just going to disappear you can, we, it's very easy to have a positive only, you know, positive vibes only, uh, happiness, happiness and bliss only attitude towards spirituality and towards meditation. And it's just not life. Like life mm. is just not like that. I mean, I think, I think it only takes experiencing one major loss in your life to see that the Buddha is correct when yeah. he said that life, life is suffering. You know, I, I used to disagree with that with the first noble truth but like life is not suffering you know yeah. no way and then my dad died and i realized yeah life is suffering oh okay he was right totally mm-hmm. <laughs> it just takes time it just takes some maturity for you to see yeah. oh wow like everything is subject to decay everything is subject to impermanence and from the initial perspective we see that as suffering but as we progress and as we become more mature we use that that initial base, what got us started on the path and um, the understanding of suffering, it ultimately becomes a, a cause for liberation from suffering. But I think that if you don't really see suffering and you don't really have that as an initial understanding, you can't really, it doesn't, I think it's very critical to understand and, and to see the first noble truth um, as opposed to kind of avoiding it because you may not agree with it. Yeah. Even if you don't see it in yourself, if you take a moment to look and see it in other people, it's very transformative. 
yeah. you know, compassion, com- the understanding and experience of compassion is based on acknowledging and seeing suffering. If you're not really able to see or acknowledge suffering, then compassion is not really possible. So, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of avoidance and we do that in our lives, you know, we yeah, of course. stay stimulated, distracted by our suffering. And we always, it always comes back like, <clears throat> and you, you can build like the ego, you can build yourself up. And then I, I have this position in society and then my life seems perfect, but oh, I'm not happy. It happens a million times, same old story. It's sort of yeah. like, I look at Buddhism, Buddhist teaching is like the sky, like it's always in the background. It's always there. It's just reality, but we, we forget to look at it. We, we like, we, we take it for granted, but it's just there. And then you, something may happen and it's just like the, this net that holds you. And it, it's telling you that everything is all right. Everything will be okay. Like, and a, a big thing is like you described the, this avoidance. Sometimes we, people like sit in meditation and they think, oh, I had a terrible meditation. I, I, my mind was everywhere, but there's no such thing. It's, you just observe. And sometimes having, observing your scattered mind is very fruitful. Like you need to see that. Mm-hmm. So there's no such thing. It's just, I mean, you may not feel good, but it's like, it's just, you just are, your mind is how it is. So stopping and just looking at the scattered thoughts is, that is the meditation is no, when we apply like uh, good and bad to the experience, I think it's uh, a little bit of clinging, like striving to, to have this special aha moment when it should just happen. And even if you have it, it's not like um, have to talk about it. Yeah, I think there's definitely a right way to meditate. You know, um, that's kind of that's one of the things that's like also under assault in the uh, <laughs> in the mindfulness circles that there's no there's no right way to meditate. Nonsense. Yes, there is. If you're sleeping, <laughs> sorry, I you know, you just. <laughs> You could you can wake up from your nap and then do it, but don't consider the sleeping time the meditation, <laughs> or, the, meditation. or the mindfulness time. Yeah, I, I mean, come on, like let's 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 we need to be clear about this stuff, you know. But um, that being said, I think that what we define as good and bad in practice is very relative, you know, and it's based on a very limited view of our understanding, because you could have four quote unquote bad meditations. And then when you have the sixth one, that's an absolute incredible session, um, you don't, you don't see that the five that just happened were related to that sixth one, you know, you just, oh, it just happened randomly. No, nothing happens randomly. So yeah, yeah, practice is like that. What, what seems to be like when you're, when you're feeling that you're up against the wall and that you're having difficulty that often is what happens and what is supposed to happen right before um, the practice can become very profound for you. So, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's just, it's exactly symbolic for life. Like you may fall, fail five or six times, 
But once you finally succeed and you don't give up, then as you said, you, you don't remember, like you may remember your failures, but that's the, exactly what made you, what feels so good because now you made it, now you succeeded. So it's like, that's all part, it's all part of it. And to yeah, just like 100, disregard, just disregard the, the pain. Uh, I think that's, I, but actually, I think this is, I want to talk about this. You said there's a right way to meditate. So let's take a break and then we'll come back and discuss that. Okay. Sure. All right. All right, so we're back. So we were talking about, you said there's, you know, a lot of different techniques that people teach, and you said there's a right way for meditation. So what is the right way of meditation? Depends on the technique um, that's being taught. So, but there's certainly a right way to do a given method. So like, for example, in Dhammakaya meditation, the wrong way to do it um, would be to use a lot of force on an object outside of your body with your eyes open. Well, wait, would, wait. I think people don't know what it is. So maybe you start with what is the Dharmakaya method? Oh, sure. So in Dharmakaya meditation, there's a resting point for your attention or for the mind. It's called the center of the body. So in this practice, you take a visualized object and you place that inside the body. So it's about two finger widths above the belly button and in the direct center of the body. So the, uh, in yoga, for example, there's chakras. These are energy centers. The crown is one of them. The heart is another. The throat is another. These are all... Um, energy centers that have specific functions. So in this practice, there's a location inside the body called the seventh base of mind uh, or the center of the body. And it's the access point to inner bodies um, that are beyond the physical body. So the way to that is to still your mind and to become still at this location um, inside your abdomen. So since that's the gateway, essentially, like that's the stargate, that's where you uh, balance mindfulness and, and relaxation and gradually enter meditative absorption or jhana. Um, to do that, to rest your attention outside of the body on an object like a stone or a wall, it'd be wrong in the context of how this meditation is practiced. But in Zen, for example, you stare at a wall and you let your mind just rest and your eyes are open and, or you, some other methods, you have your attention placed on a dot on a wall and anytime it wanders, you, you bring it back to the dot. So in the context of a practice that is oriented towards entirely formulated around this point inside the body to place it outside the body would be incorrect in the context of this practice. So it's the same thing in Zen. In Zen, if they tell you, don't create anything in your mind, don't fabricate any mental images, don't, you know, don't create any visual object in the mind. 
then to create a visual object in your mind would be wrong in the context of that practice. So every practice has uh, its particular way of being done, uh, especially, I mean, mindfulness is taught uh, differently, right? Depending on who you're learning it from. But there are some basic fundamentals. And one of those is bare noticing. So you're noticing, you're observing, you're sensing directly a given object, whether it's the breath or sensation. So if you're not doing that <laughs> and you're sleeping, then you're not doing, uh, you're not doing the practice. So it's normal, it's normal to get sleepy, it's normal to have sleepiness as a hindrance, but to say that sleep is mindfulness would not make sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Like mindfulness is described as clarity, wakefulness, presence, awareness, right? All these words yeah. are put into mindfulness. And when you're asleep, you don't have any of that. So definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say it's important to have uh, a guide who at least, uh, you know, is a knows what they're doing or know has been taught meditation uh, or can someone just figure it out for themselves or what's what's your how do you see that like if you start for someone starting out what do you well, recommend well ideally if you could find an arahant with supernormal powers <laughs> they can see <laughs> your past lives and see what kind of temperament you have they can give you the right meditation technique. That's the ideal person to learn from. They're not too easy to find. So uh, your next best bet is uh, someone who's been meditating for a while, I think. And, um, but I think learning from apps and learning from YouTube videos is fine. I think that's really, I really think that's okay. Um, but at some point when you start to have the idea, you start to have the thought like, oh, you know, am I, Am I really doing this right? Or how do I go deeper? I think at that point, it, it is important to seek out a teacher. Um, if I didn't have the teachers I've had, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where I would be. So yeah, teachers are important. I think today there's this, you know, do it yourself Dharma or do it yourself mindfulness. Um, everyone's doing that. But I think that when it comes to some of the deeper stuff, you know, especially in, um, if you're using a single object like the breath or a visualized object um, and you start to move from, so in the commentarial literature, there's three stages of concentration. The first is called momentary. So that means your, your mind is on the meditation object, aware of the meditation object for like a few seconds at a time. And that gradually progresses into something called access concentration, where your mind is more firmly established on the meditation object, like for, minute, for minutes, and eventually for several minutes, um, to the point where you're getting very close to what's called absorption concentration. So that's when your mind vanishes, or your sense of self vanishes into the meditation object, and that's supported by the five jhana factors, uh, applied attention, sustained attention, happiness, bliss, and equanimity or, or one-pointedness. 
when you start to get into that territory, when you're staying with the meditation object for longer and longer periods of time, when you're moving from access concentration, it's getting very deep into absorption concentration. I mean, there's an entire territory that's very strange. It's like you could be very stable on the meditation object and there's these very real 3D images that are arising in the mind's eye, even though you're concentrated. So all of that, um, I think when meditation starts to get, when it really starts to pick up, I think it's absolutely critical to go find a teacher 100%. Because then one of the problems that, you know, we're very image focused, you know, like we think if we see certain things in meditation that, that, that that's somehow important, it's really critical that you have someone there to tell you, hey, like you don't need to pay attention to all of that. Just keep doing the method, you know, keep relaxing at the center of the body. Don't let your mind get caught in those images. It's going to disperse your stillness. It's going to disperse the power of the factors that are supporting that stillness and concentration. If you don't have someone to tell you that you're missing out, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what do you think, how important is community? Because that's one thing that was very poignant um, when I first went to like Thailand or in being in Asia where there's a lot more community, like collectivism yeah. <laughs> is strong. And that's, I think it's very important to, <clears throat> in the West, we feel so isolated. Uh, and so you, sometimes meditation can just, you there's a balance. Like I, I used to practice in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition and one thing I really gained from like going on retreat there is just this, this like support of friendly faces and people being nice, always around. And that was like very healing. And I needed that. <clears throat> so do you think it's important to, to build? And they talk about this in Buddhism, like, I don't, I don't know what it's called, like the third pillar or something like building Sangha is one of the tenants or something, right? So where do you see that? How important is that? Yeah, there's a favorite, this is one of my favorite co quotes, and, you know, I'm sure this has been repeated countless times, but um, Ananda, in a conversation with the Buddha, says, um, you know, Bhagavan, I, it has been said that uh, friendship, spiritual friendship, spiritual camaraderie is only half of the holy life, and the Buddha said, I'm not, I'm probably, you know, butchering it, but, <laughs> but the Buddha said, no, Ananda. <laughs> spiritual companion, spiritual friendship is the entirety of the holy life. I think that's very important um, yeah. because you, this is not, you know, we try to present Buddhism and mindfulness as this thing that is just like super easy and very accessible and like nothing is going to go wrong ever. It's just nonsense. Like this is a very difficult, this can be right. a very difficult journey. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can hear me, right? Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. 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 Th this can be, this can be a very difficult journey. You know, a lot, a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of personality material, things that have happened to us and even things of a very strange spiritual nature can begin to happen. And you really need, I think it's very important to have a community when that stuff begins to occur. I think we have this idea of like the man living on the mountain, you know, 
Mm. Or the or the or the story of that Tibetan bhikkhuni who like went into retreat for thirty years. That's a very rare kind of practitioner. Most <laughs> practitioners are not like that. Actually, most if you if you actually go to different temples and monasteries and you go through Southeast Asia, you'll find that most of the monastics are in temples with other monastics. Yeah, I mean the ones that are not doing that, they're only not doing that because they they are at a level in their practice or they're in a phase in their development where they want to really be isolated and hone in on their meditation and, and develop things in, in that particular regard. But most of the Buddhist world, most of the monastic world is certainly uh, in community. They are living together. They're working together. They're spreading Dharma together. They're studying together. They eat together. They do, they do everything together. It's really yeah. the the person who is bent on like becoming a master or something that really goes into isolation, you know, or someone who wants to deepen their practice. But for the most part, people are together. And why is that? You know, why is that so important? Well, it's it's easier for other people to help you see where you're messing up than it than it might be for you to see where you're messing up, you know. And a lot of that a lot of that monastic life is about purifying your conduct and being a better monastic and you know overcoming defilements and rectifying or transforming your character defects and that's very useful it's it's easier to do with a group of other monastics or with a group of of spiritual friends that are supporting you um there's this one particular group in the suttas that i found really inspiring so like five days out of the week, they would meditate the whole day and they would observe silence and they still would eat together. They would still sit together. And then on the weekends or every, you know, for two days after their five day period of silence, they would either continue to observe silence or they would discuss Dhamma. They would discuss things that were related to, um, to the Buddhist teachings or to their, to their practice. I mean, imagine that. That's like a. That's just an incredibly nourishing, incredibly, incredibly empower, incredibly empowering and powerful environment to to be in. I mean, a lot of people here, they're spiritual. They have a spiritual awakening, and they feel like they can't talk to anybody anybody about it. As opposed to, there's literally groups, there's communities of people that have oriented their lives towards this, and they are supporting each other. I think it's a very beautiful thing. And um, I think it's necessary, especially for certain parts of your practice. You need someone to check you. You need someone to to make sure you're on the right track. I mean, Ajahn Chah talked about his role as a teacher, and he saw it as like, you know, if you start veering off a little far to the left, he, he just tells you to come back to come back closer to the center. If you start veering off a little further to the right tells you to, you know, knocks you on the head, tells you to come back closer to the center. But like, if that teacher is not there, if that community is not there to, to, to provide that, then you just keep going off to the left and then you're in the ditch and then, you know, you're falling over and your foot's bleeding and all this stuff. And then you got to walk back to the center anyways and get help. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a subgroup of a subgroup. Uh, it's like think about how many people in the world just decide to move into the woods and they can live by themselves in a cabin it's like uh, and then like the most monks they live in community 
in connection with the uh, society and like there's a few monks who like forest monks they go off into the forest but then it's just kind of like in my opinion it's it's sort of just like see ya <laughs> and yeah. I, I what i i respect that uh if that's what someone wants to do with their life why not it's their life but for me, uh, the the practice, the real practice and the challenge is with people and in society. And I love people. And that's, you know, to to really test your your calmness, your stillness, your practices is with other people, especially challenging people. And I that's the kind of we can get into the, the like there's the bodhisattva ideal of like there's two ways, like one way is to kind of just to try to go to for full enlightenment where you you're letting go of everything, truly letting go. It's a, like a level most people don't understand. And then there's the bodhisattva where it's like due to the compassion we generate from meditation, like let's try to help people overcome their suffering in this life. And they the bodhisattva refrains from going like full enlightenment to to stay behind to to help people i kind of am drawn to that just in theory uh and i i don't know like i i think it's it's i i heard a i forget who said this but it's maybe a zen teacher was like if you think you're enlightened go home and visit your parents (laughs) yeah yeah definitely um, I think, well, I think we also have this idea that monasticism or like living in isolation is easy. I think, I think that's actually, it can be a very, very difficult thing. I don't, I don't, I don't think most people can be isolated for any length of time, actually. I mean, I can, but um, that's yeah. because I'm like designed for that sort of thing. I don't think most people can, can do it. I don't really that's think true. most people should should do it um but that being said i have respect for whatever it is people want to do you know like you said if you want to you know go into the forest and you know become become an arhan or become fully enlightened like i mean go for it i I think that's i think that's very powerful um and especially if someone can actually achieve it or can actually awaken to that to that level that's extremely profound there's not there's not very many people that that are able to to do that um but to your idea to what you said about the bodhisattva vow or the bodhisattva ideal of helping people and and serving people i i also see that as a as an incredibly um worthwhile goal it just depends on what what your goal is and what you what you particularly value i personally don't particularly see either monastic life nor worldly life as as real anymore <laughs> i don't see either of those as particularly <laughs> nothing is real uh, of of being uh, a particular substance or or whatever i mean that being said i i still have plans to to become a monastic but i don't my attitude towards it is very different i don't really see it as i don't see it the way I, that i used to see it in the same way that i don't see my life now or life now in the way that i used to see it you know there's there's generally this narrative that is in the mind, mm. this narrative of, you know, I'm, 
I'm this person and I need to do this mm -hmm. and these are my goals. And you have that in spiritual life. Like most, I would say many monastics have that same, that same narrative. Um, but I think the, <clears throat> the mark, at least in some, in some people's unfolding and in their journeys that they've described is that that narrative stops like the, the story of what you are supposed to become mm. or what you're supposed to do. It just doesn't, it's not really there anymore you have the you have the sense that i feel that there's still the sense of like you know if you throw if you throw a rock into a river it's gonna it's gonna sink in a specific way if a leaf falls from a tree it's gonna fall in a specific way and that and that if it was to do it any other way it would just be strange and off you know like some people i feel that they really are supposed to be monks and some people i feel that they really are supposed to be lay people and um, whichever one makes them happy and whichever one they can, whichever mode they can use to benefit the most people, I think um, that's what they should do because that's, that's the context that they experience reality in. They experience reality in my personal happiness is very important and my capacity to serve others is very important. So if those structures are there, then those structures should be adhered to. Otherwise you're gonna be miserable. But um, if the structures aren't there, then <laughs> whatever is going to happen is just going to happen so yeah no it's i totally agree it's it's like to monk to be a monk or not be a monk it's not really important it's and it's 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 interesting how we our identities get all wrapped up in what you are or what you aren't like oh if i'm not a monk i can't find enlightenment or if i'm i'm a monk i, I can't well, I guess there's just precepts, but, um, you know, I think people fear to let go of the I, like, I am this, I, we try so hard, we talked about this before, you try so hard to be something, to be, the, and you, our identities get wrapped up in something, and then if I'm not that, I'm nothing, people think I'm nothing, but Actually, it's like the opposite. You, you're everything. You can be everything and not limited to one specific, uh, not be put in a box. And I think, I don't know what you think about Eckhart Tolle, but I, I really like, I like him. And I think he had that kind of just awakened realization that, oh shit, like it was just, I'm just imprisoned by my ego and yeah. I, I can be, once I just, I, if I really just let it go, and I guess that's what happens, it just like a clicks, like, holy shit, now I'm free. I don't care what you think, what people think or judge me. I can just be on a bench. And uh, he was living like, I mean, like people can live like monks, more diligent in their practice and letting go more without wearing a rope. And as you know, there's, can be monks who've been monks for 30 years. Maybe they've been isolated for 10 years, but they're assholes. <laughs> so it just, it depends on the person. Yeah, it does. It does depend on the person. I mean, I have a massive respect for, for monasticism. You know, my, my teacher, my teachers were monks. So I think, I think if you can do it, then do it. Or if you want to do it, you especially should do it. But, um, it depends what what it is that that we really value. Um, 
you know, is it better for a person to become a monk and live a life of quiet solitude or is it better for them to, you know, cause some incredible breakthrough in medicine and save the lives of, <clears throat> of millions of people? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Some people would, you know, you have people that, that would argue, you know, in, in opposite directions on, on that point. But um, I think that there's definitely something to be said about the solidity of our sense of an eye and the, the, the realness of that, of that eye. I think that for some people, renouncing your company and your status and your family, especially if you come from a family, uh, uh, like, you know, a family of status, um, that's a big thing for someone to do. That that is that is really renunciation. Um, when you actually have a lot to to turn away from, <laughs> and I think that's extremely spiritually powerful, and that that's really a, a, a large, significant foundation in in monkhood. There's also the thing to consider that you know. You could go into monasticism and or into ascetic the ascetic lifestyle and like that can actually make your sense of self bigger yeah. you know we we it's 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 very common that a person becomes a yoga teacher or becomes has some spiritual experiences and then suddenly they're on this high horse and they think they're better than other people you know like that that happens all the time now you have some experience. Now you have some spiritual experiences. You have justification to see yourself as special. You know, it's all classified as a delusion, defilement. Yeah, it's all um, it's all very unuseful in my opinion. But what what is considered good for one person is really bad. Can be really bad for another. What is yeah. considered good, what is considered good on the surface, uh, could actually be detrimental. And what is considered really, really unfortunate and just horrible um, for us to see or for a person to go through. It could be the best thing that will ever happen to them, you know? Yeah, man. So it, it really just depends. I don't think, I think that one of the, one of the great things about spirituality and broadening your perspective and, and understanding is that we, we begin to see that everything's not so black and white. You know, there's a full spectrum of experience and, and possibilities. And for the most part, no one really knows what they're talking about. You know, I mean, really, there's people who, I mean, there's people who really know, sure, but there's not very many of them. Yeah, I'm and, not one uh, of them. <laughs> yeah, I'm not either, right? The rest of us are kind of just, you know. Yeah, so I think I think it's important to um, to see that there's there's a lot of nuance in life and there's a lot of nuance and and holes in our understanding and what what may what may really seem like the worst thing that's ever happened to you might actually be the best i think that's that's really critical you know as a practitioner as a practitioner i always thought that that the path began for me like when i did those meditation retreats and the truth is things things really began for me and they turned into a whole whole new level of of uh understanding when my father died you know that was that was like the worst thing that was by far the worst thing that ever happened to me 
And 10 years wow. later, it's the best, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, it made me really, yeah, it made me so strong. Like now, now, I mean, what, what, what can I, what can I not endure? I mean, there's nothing that I can't endure. I endured losing the man that, that I love more than anything. There's, there's really nothing in life that can break me after having recovered and healed from that. Mm. I mean, it's like, you know, lose some money here, business fails, you flunk out of school, you get fired, relationship ends. That's like, that's all small stuff compared to, yeah, you know, losing your child or losing your wife or losing your husband, losing your dad. Yeah. You know, these are, these are big, these are big things. And oftentimes people experience them, experience them as the most difficult thing they've ever been through. And people that I've met that have had to deal with grief, a lot of them tell me it really made them who they are having to heal and having to grow and having to move on from that. It requires so much of you for that to really happen and for, for you to really grow on your own and, and walk on your own and, you know, set your own sails and just go for it. You, you have to do so much more than, you know, what you would have had to do had you not been through any of any of that yeah right? yeah yeah so i think so i think this is really the gem of suffering i mean so so much of us are so many of us are like we're averse to suffering but when we close the door off to suffering we actually close the door off to opportunity we close the door off to joy and we, we close the door off to love because in suffering we actually we learn and grow in ways that we would not you know, I mean, when I think of the, the best and the most powerful lessons I learned, I mean, did I really learn it when I was like blissed out and happy, you know, or did I learn it when, you know, everything hit the fan and I had to look at myself in the mirror and say like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, these are my, these are my mistakes. I have to fix them. You know, both, both have their place. Both are really important. But I feel that if we, if we neglect that shadow, if we neglect that the parts of ourselves that we don't want to look at. I mean, mm. the cost is just immeasurable later in life. So, yeah, yeah, I'm all for suffering. I'm all for suffering. I'm a suffering advocate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you think about the nature of compassion, there's an element of sadness in it. And you describe like suffering. How would we know like the highs wouldn't feel so good without the lows? exactly like there's no light without the dark so it's interchangeable and it's like it makes you who you are and just like this avoidance of people wait like you said it's a, it's actually a blessing in disguise to to suffer younger i i believe if you have a way to if you, if you just if you're just suffering without getting better obviously it's not good but if you're trans if you use it transforming if you're like Thich Nhat Hanh describes like there's no mud there's no lotus without the mud a flower yeah. can't grow without mud without dirt and everything is in that flower like the sun the cloud the rain every part of every element is contained in that and the mind is like that happiness is not nothing without suffering and too many times people wait too late in life to their midlife crisis and then they realize like it was all meaningless 
Whereas if you experienced, like you said, you lost your dad and you're, you're still a young, young guy, like it hurt immeasurably, but it, it made you accept that like life is, you have to let go and letting go is, I think that's the hardest one, man. Just letting go of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Accepting just, it's just the way it goes. You know, it's, it's a, it's a really powerful lesson to understand that, that life is, is not like the movies. You know, we, we have this idea that, that it's always going to be a happy ending and that, and that it's always, it's always going to be all right. I mean, it's not, (laughs) you know, like it may be, it may be ultimately all right, you know, but for a period of time, there may be a phase in your life where, I mean, really everything is not is not okay and yeah and that and that is that is it's okay for things to not be okay yeah um i think i think the great thing about this path is that we we move like like for eckhart tolle i love i love power of now by the way and and a lot of his a lot of his work he really woke up from the story of his life Mm. you know that 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 narrative of being a depressed person and suffering in the way that he did that that ended he was blessed with that realization and with that with that kind of awakening it's just it's just incredibly profound um for for many of us when we have when we have a a deep awakening or when we pick up a a spiritual practice the whole the whole essence to me is shifting out of that story of uh, out of our beliefs and into reality out of our concepts of what we think things are and into the direct experience of things as they are this is very different from how we were raised and how we're taught and even how the even how conventional society works i mean our whole world is based on concepts it's all built on on beliefs and on ideas when i think what's so beautiful about contemplative practice and about spirituality is that it's really the one place where you can get beyond ideas and get beyond beliefs into the actuality of things you know even even most religions don't offer that but i think what's so beautiful about buddhism and what's so beautiful about meditation is that it has passed for that that there is a way to to experience reality and to awaken to it beyond what what we think about it and what we've believed about it for thousands of years i i remember i think i've said i said many years ago i said um like just what a blessing to no longer be bound to the 2600 years of ideas that came before me (laughs) to all the opinions of these holy people and the scientists and the philosophers and all the commentators and what they think about the human experience and to really come to your own conclusions on the human experience and come to your own direct experience with reality, direct experience with the body, direct experience with the mind, to really cut through everything that's ever been said by other people. You can only get that from spirituality. Wow. I think, man, this has been great. I think that's a perfect way to, to end the episode. 
but I really appreciate your time. It was a great, great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing me on Thorin. It was, yeah, it was awesome talking to you and, and getting to know you a little more. Yeah. And you know, good luck with your show. And if you ever want me back, you know, I'm happy to come on. So yeah, man, stay tuned for episode. I'll have you on again. It was fun. All right, man. Take care. Yeah. Have a great time. Have a great day. Peace.